Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard Al, and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. I invite you to scroll through my extensive catalog of more than 130 awesome interviews and listen on any podcast app or at the website aarecoveryinterviews.com. Today's show is an encore episode of my interview with Charlie D. from July 2021. Charlie has been a sober member of AA since July 1997. My guest on today's podcast is a good friend with whom I've shared many AA meetings over the years, Charlie D. Emerging from a relatively normal childhood, Charlie suffered debilitating headaches at age 13 caused by hydrocephalus and underwent the first of five brain operations over the next eight years. By 15, he had begun using alcohol and pot, both recreationally and to relieve his head pain. With sports out of the question, Charlie learned guitar and soon started playing in bands. His alcohol and drug use escalated through high school and college and ultimately through law school. By the time he passed the bar exam and embarked on his childhood dream of being a lawyer, Charlie had become a functional alcoholic, drinking daily as he chased the goal of winning a multi-million dollar lawsuit. But even after he achieved that goal, Charlie realized that money and acclaim did nothing to fill the spiritual hole in his psyche and left him drinking more than ever, seeking relief and release. In subsequent years, his alcoholism was fueled by a fifth of scotch per day. A failed first marriage and three arrests for DWI drove Charlie into AA in 1992. But his refusal to do the work and his resistance to God in the steps eventually washed him out of the program. By the time he dragged back into AA in 1997, after five years of increasing drug use and sordid behavior, Charlie had finally had enough. He got a sponsor, started working the steps, and established a relationship with a power greater than himself. Regular meetings, sponsoring other men, and doing service work all drew him into the center of the program, where he lives today. A healed relationship with his current wife and children, as the result of the program, further solidified his commitment to sobriety above all else. When you listen to Charlie's story on today's AA Recovery Interview show, you're likely to hear similarities to your own story. As with all my interviews, Charlie's willingness to share intimate parts of his life with listeners speaks to his love and concern for recovering alcoholics everywhere. His dedication to the program and his ongoing desire to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety are radiant in his words and enthusiasm. So, savor the next 60 minutes of this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my good friend and AA brother, Charlie D. Hi, I'm Charlie, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Charlie. Thanks for joining me today on AA Recovery Interviews. I'm really glad you could do this. Normally, when I see you, it's after you've driven a considerable number of miles to get to that Thursday meeting. And I wanted to ask you, what is there about that meeting that makes you willing to drive so many miles to Houston? There's a bunch of reasons. Primarily, when I first sobered up back in 1997, I attended the Alder Street group. Uh -huh. That was fundamental in my recovery. And there's uh -huh. so many guys that attend the Thursday meeting that attended the Alder Street. So it has the feel of Alder Street. Uh -huh. I love the fact that it's an all men's meeting. I think, you know, on certain issues, we get to go a little deeper than we would in mixed meetings. And mm -hmm. all of the guys I admire in AA, uh, or at least most of all of the guys, attend that meeting on a regular basis. So it's uh -huh. definitely my homebrew. Yeah. So how long have you been sober now? I just hit 24 years on July 1st. 24 years. Okay. So that would make it 1997? July 1st, 1997. Were you living in, uh, in Galveston at that time? I was living in Friendswood at the time. Okay. So you've been driving up to Houston for the meetings from Friendswood, which isn't as far away as Galveston is, but now you're living in Galveston and you're making that drive. How many times a week do you drive up for meetings? Well, my office is in Clear Lake, and I still go into the office most days of the week. So typically on the Thursday, I'm driving up from the office, uh, which is still 
almost an hour each way, depending on traffic. So I've got yeah. to carve out a good three, three and a half hours each Thursday to hit that meeting, but it's worth it to me. Yeah, that's how it is for me where I live. Over the years, most all of the meetings I've gone to have been anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes to drive each way. You include another 15 minutes before and after the meeting, plus the hour for the meeting. And you are, you're talking about a two and a half, maybe three hour commitment. I love those meetings. And to me, I would drive any distance to go to a bar. So why not drive the same number of miles to go to AA, right? That's my thought. Now, during COVID, what amazed me was how few miles I put on my car during that time. Did you find the same thing? Oh, God. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable how few miles we put on both of our cars, my wife and I. Yeah. So in 1997, what, what was going on in your life that made you come to AA? Or had you tried AA previous to 97? I first attempted to sober up on June 15th of 1992. Okay. In retrospect, I, I did that mostly for my wife, my parents, and all of that. Uh -huh. I hadn't really hit a bottom that would have kept me sober. But you know, I did the program right at first. When I came in on June 15th, somebody told mm -hmm. me to do 90 meetings in 90 days, and I did right. that. Yeah. And prior to that, I had been an everyday drinker. I drank right when I came in initially in 1992. I was drinking in excess of a half a fifth of scotch a day, every day. I, I tried wow. to look back and I couldn't remember a single day I didn't drink. I drank seven days a week. How many years did you do that for, Charlie? Oh my God. I I started drinking when I was about 15. I mean, I started drinking and smoking pot at the same time. Yeah. And I loved them both. And when I first tried to sober up in 92, I was 35 years old. And so, uh, you know, I, I had been drinking and drugging for 20 years mm -hmm. prior to that initial attempt. So you started at 15. What were the circumstances under which you started? Is that something that goes back to your family of origin? Or what was it like growing up and getting to that 15-year-old stage? Oh, it, it absolutely was about that. I was a normal kid growing up playing sports and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then when I turned 13, I, uh, I started having horrible headaches and uh they kept getting worse and worse and worse and mm -hmm. and th they got so severe that i started seeing double and my parents finally got me to a neurologist and mm -hmm. i never had a firm diagnosis but i basically had water on the brain like hydrocephalitis for an infant but you know i'm uh -huh. 13 years old so it shouldn't have been happening to me then but it did so they ended up doing emergency surgery on me, and they, they put a shunt in my head down to my stomach to relieve the pressure in my head. Oh, wow. And fast forward 18 months, and it came back. And uh, the second time it came back coincided with me drinking and drugging. And I definitely started drinking and drugging to relieve the pain of feeling unique, less than, and all that. I, I'll never forget the first time when I was 13. Mm -hmm. And I came back from the hospital after having that initial surgery. And at that time, I had long hair. I, I mean, it was yeah. well well past my shoulders. And they had to shave my head when uh, oh. they, they operated on me. So when I came back to school, I, I forget what grade I was in, sixth or seventh. Uh, uh -huh. But I, I remember walking down the halls that first day and Nobody made fun of me or anything, but they all looked at me with like pity in their eyes. And, and, and uh -huh. I would have much rather have been made yeah. fun of than pity. Uh -huh. And so, yeah. you know, when it rolled around the second go around, it, it, it was just devastating to me. And the drinking and drugging helped. And, and that, that same thing kept happening almost every 18 months until I was 21 years old. So. I mean, wow. my, my entire, from 13 to 21, I was in and out of hospitals having operations on my head. Was it the same operation every time? Absolutely, yes. So they would just drain your brain every 18 months? Yeah, you know, they'd put a shunt in, which theoretically should have kept working. But those, I mean, it was a really primitive operation. This was back in, in the mid-70s. And so wow. 
you know, the shop would get clogged up and it would, you know, I'd have to go in and get another one. And uh, it, oh, just, it just kept going like that. And then miraculously it went away when I was 21 and never came back again. So was the drinking setting off the symptoms of the headaches, but at the same time, was it also offering you relief? No, the drinking really had nothing to do with the headaches. I mean, it initially happened to me before I ever took a drink of alcohol. Okay, sure. So I, I took a drink of alcohol in response to it, uh-huh. you know, to try to make myself feel better. Did it help any? Oh, it absolutely it helped, yeah. Huh. Yeah, you know, drinking and smoking pot miraculously made me feel like I was a part of instead of a part from. And I and I really felt a part from for all of that because I, I had to quit playing sports. I mean, my whole life changed. I, could, I couldn't do anything that I had done before. Hmm. So at that time, we're talking about what, four or five operations between 13 and and 21? Yes. You mentioned about not being able to play sports. Did you switch to a different social group in school? Did you hang out with the, the folks who were doing the things that you were doing at that point, drinking and smoking pot? Yes, absolutely. I did. One of the unforeseen benefits of it. I started playing guitar then instead of sports. And and I started playing in a band. And I mean, I've played in a band now my entire life from that point. And I I love playing guitar and music. So that was an underlying benefit of it, but it didn't feel like a benefit at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But yes, the the crowd definitely changed. I I, I changed to hanging out with the dopers. And there was Mm -hmm. definitely two classes of kids back then. You know, there were the sports kids and the dopers. So as you were hanging out with this group, did they move you into additional types of drugs or were you mostly just pot and alcohol? In high school, I was mostly pot and alcohol. I would drink only on the weekends in Mm -hmm. high school, but I smoked pot every day. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as I got in probably the junior and senior year, I started doing quaaludes and stuff like that. I, I loved downers. I, mm-hmm. You know, I dabbled in everything. I mean, I tried cocaine, speed, and all of that stuff, but I, mm-hmm. I really liked the downers. Mm-hmm. But I, my drug of choice always was, first and foremost, alcohol. I'm not one of those guys that have to claim I'm an alcoholic in AA meetings, but really was a drug head. I, I was an alcoholic. That was my drug of choice. When you were in high school, were you in a band at that time or were you still learning? No, I was in a band in high school, yeah. Uh-huh. So were you playing around town or, or just for fun? But, so, yeah, we, we played little gigs at various clubs in town, uh, especially my senior year. I was 18. And back in those days, you know, the drinking age was 18. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fun. <laughs> you know, and alcohol and drugs, for the most part, back then were still fun. Yeah, I found that to be the same way. I mean, I didn't really start using pot or alcohol until I was about 17 or 18. But then, you know, it was Katie bar the door after that. So you hit 18. Did you get through high school with reasonably good grades or were you a functional alcoholic during that time? Yeah, I absolutely was. I I always made made good grades in school despite the drinking and drugging. Uh Uh-huh. Was that about the willpower to really get down to doing the things you needed to do to get good grades, or were you, was it just luck, or were you just a, you know, a naturally smart guy? I think I was probably a naturally smart guy. I also, from a very young age, I, I wanted to be a lawyer. I, and huh. I, I can't tell you why I wanted to be a lawyer, because nobody uh-huh. in my family had been one prior to that. But, mm-hmm. I mean, from a very young age, I wanted to be one. So, I mean, I always had that goal in mind, and... I knew in order to do that, I had to make good grades. And so, yeah, I was a functioning alcoholic through that Hmm. period. Hmm. So you went from high school to college. What was your experience like while you were in college with alcohol and drugs? It it all just intensified. You know, I'm I'm Mm -hmm. living by myself at that point. So the drinking started uh, every day as opposed to just the weekends. Yeah. And again, I was still smoking pot every day, too. So, I mean, I'd, I'd go to class high. I'd take tests high. Not drunk, high. I, you know, I had a routine. I'd get up in the morning before class and smoke a joint and go to class. Yeah. And I'd come home and do my homework, and then I'd start yeah. drinking. So, I mean, I had a little routine that sounds incredibly bizarre listening to it come out of my mouth right now, but it worked back then. Well, you know, it worked for me, too. When I was in college, I was I was getting high virtually every day. I'd do it in the morning before I'd go to classes, and then I would... Uh, 
I would go to class and I'd come home, I'd smoke some more and I'd study some more. And I actually did pretty well. And I took from that experience the idea that pot somehow sharpened me up, made me maybe a little bit more willing to study and get good grades than I might otherwise have been. What I found, though, was that my decision making wasn't all that good while I was smoking pot. And usually because pot led to the alcohol, which then led to me falling down drunk, which wasn't a good thing. (laughs) Well, I have a very embarrassing story that kind of Uh follows up on your experience about that. Uh You know, I I made it through uh, college and I graduated magna cum laude. uh, Wow. And then I go into law school and law school was kind of a rude awakening for me because, uh, you know, most people had law school were as smart or smarter than I was. And that, that was never the case in in undergrad. Mm -hmm. We, you know, that first year they tried to weed people out and and we had to read, you know, hundred, 150 pages a day. And I came up with the brilliant idea that if I woke up at like four 35 every morning and took just a line of cocaine, you know, I could do all, (laughs) I could do all my reading and get ready for class. And I literally did that every day, my first semester Wow, And the cocaine use progressed so much that by the end of the semester, like a week before finals, I mean, I had been doing so much cocaine, I'd gotten so disoriented. I mean, I I started just (laughs) babbling incoherencies. You know, my girlfriend at the time calls my parents and they put me in the hospital and all. I mean, it it was just a, can I say shit show? Because that's what it was. It it was a shit show. Uh, But it it, it didn't stop me from doing cocaine or or drinking still. Uh, Ironically, ever since that point, I quit smoking pot because it made me paranoid every time I smoked pot, but it didn't. Doing the cocaine, I I kept going with that. So, you know, life just progressively got crazier. So you were a daily cocaine user at that time. Most students, I remember when I was in college and I went to a state school and cocaine was pretty expensive and it was a luxury item where I went to school. To do it every day meant you had some stash of money somewhere. How were you able to afford that kind of habit while you were in college? Well, it it was that, you know, my parents were giving me money. Probably, oh, okay. probably in retrospect, way more than they should have been. And uh-huh. I was selling some of it on the side too, <laughs> okay. to friends to, to minimize the cost to me. So is it safe to say that cocaine fueled your passage from your first year into your second year? And did you continue to do the cocaine as you went on in law school? I did not. It ended up the very first final I took in law school that first semester, I failed the final because I, I was so kind of disoriented from the cocaine. So <laughs> oh, no. that taught me a lesson where no, the, after the first year, the cocaine tapered off. And it was uh-huh. that was really when I started focusing more and more just on drinking. Did you find a big difference between your study habits or your retention of knowledge and information while you were drinking compared to the cocaine that you had been using? You know, that's hard to determine. I, you know, I had studied high for so long all the way through college and everything. I didn't have a baseline to say whether, you know, if I had been studying straight versus alcohol versus cocaine. Yeah. It, it, it's funny saying this, but I kind of disciplined myself again. In law school, I wouldn't start drinking until after I had studied, mm-hmm. most of the time, mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when there was real work to be done, you had a certain amount of willpower to get it done before you started drinking? Yes. And that yeah. was a pattern I followed throughout my life, really. So were you more of a binger, or were you just a kind of a steady drinker throughout the week? At that point, I was an everyday drinker. Was that every day after you'd gotten your work done, or did it progress to anything more than that? No, dur- all during college and law school, it was every day after getting the work done. I, you okay. know, I, I hadn't started drinking really before five much at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. What was your drinking like at that time? Were you were you blacking out as a result of drinking or were you just getting a buzz on and went to sleep and next day on to more studying? No, yeah, I blacked out from close to the first time I drank. I mean, in high school, I had, I had blackouts. It didn't happen every time I drank, but I mean, yeah. I, I had plenty of blackouts 
in high school. And you know where you'd wake up in the morning and say to the girlfriend, hey, start telling her a story. She goes, you know, you told me that last night. You know, you, <laughs> I, I, I have no recollection of it. So. I think that was kind of the way for me, too. There were there were days when I would remember more than others about the previous night. I, I didn't black out a whole lot. You know, if you're blacking out all the time, you've got a great reason to stop drinking that you're blacking out. Right. And you, right. you, you, you want to stop blacking out. So you stop drinking. I didn't black out enough for that to become the case for me. Uh, I always felt like I could hold my liquor and I usually did. But. Maybe it delayed me getting sober to a later point because I was able to do that. Did, did you find that you were informing the future Charlie of what was to come by the kind of drinking that you were doing in law school? Absolutely. You know, and it, and it's funny. It was it was the perfect storm after law school because uh-huh. uh, once I graduated law school, I went to work for a law firm, uh-huh. and the attorney who was in charge of me go you know, to teach me how to really practice law. He right. was an alcoholic. And so oh, wow. he and I became best friends. And every night after work, we'd go out and drink. Mm-hmm. That progressed to, you know, we'd go out at lunch more and mm. more often and have a few drinks as well. It was pretty obvious to everybody but me at that point, in mm-hmm. my family at least, that I had a drinking problem. And so right. I promised my then wife, who was my girlfriend all during college, that. Uh-huh. I'd show her that I wasn't a drunk and, and I vowed to quit drinking for six months and I did. And then the night of the six month anniversary, I drank and, and just picked up where I left off. But I rationalized that six month dryness to drink for another 10 years after that. So that desire to stop at that particular uh, junction was more about proving that you weren't an alcoholic than it was a real desire to stop drinking. Absolutely. That was the only desire of it. Yeah. Right. So once you proved that you could stay sober, was that synonymous with proving you weren't an alcoholic? Yes. That helped me rationalize it for the next several years. I hmm. uh, Near my first attempt at AA back in 1992, before I actually went to AA, mm-hmm. and, and my memory is somewhat unclear on this, but somebody recommended the experiment that our big book talks about, which was, you know, to see if I was a real alcoholic or not. For two weeks, I did the deal where I took a jigger. I only drank two jiggerfuls of scotch for two weeks each night. Mm-hmm. And those were the worst two weeks of my life. <laughs> I was wondering how satisfying that was. <laughs> no, it, I mean, it proved to me I was an alcoholic because, you know, the two drinks wouldn't quite flip that switch in your head, but it got uh-huh. really close to flipping it. And it, yeah. it was literally just agony not having more drinks. I was never one of those guys that I'd go out to dinner and order a cocktail with dinner and that would be it. I, I Every time I started drinking, I wanted to get drunk. I I didn't want to get blackout drunk. And most times I didn't get blackout drunk, but the goal was always to get drunk. And so that experiment showed me uh, that I was an alcoholic. It didn't make me quit at the time, but I I understood I was an alcoholic. So Charlie, I've had two or three attorneys now on the show, and I, I like to ask the same question about it. What is there about being an attorney that we find ourselves with more attorneys than perhaps any other single profession in the program? You know, attorneys, as a general rule, are intelligent. They're purpose driven. Yeah. The job is incredibly stressful. Yeah. Especially in your early years when you're, you know, you're striving to become partner and make money and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And we're all egomaniacs. I mean, in order to be a good (laughs) attorney, you've got to be an egomaniac. Um, I get it. Uh And I certainly was. I I was your classic egomaniac with an inferiority conflict, but I didn't know that at the time. Right. So you you graduated law school. You sat for the bar. You got hired, you said, by a a law firm. What were the next several years like for you after that and in the practice of law until, let's say, 1992? What was going on during those years? You'd mentioned that you were also married at that time. Yes. I went to work for what was a big firm in Galveston, and I stayed there about two and a half years with my boss, who was an alcoholic. But I learned fairly early on I didn't respond well to authority. And so I, I went out and started my own practice and, and became pretty successful at it. Uh, that was one of the things that 
probably kept me away from AA longer, obviously, than I, I should have, uh, was that mm-hmm. despite my obvious excessive drinking, I, I was pretty dang successful. I mean, you know, my income rose every year despite my drinking. And so I always threw that in everybody's face when they were going, you know, I really think you have a drinking problem. Mm-hmm. So were you trying to convince them that because you were successful, you couldn't possibly have a drinking problem? I used that. I used my six-month stint. You know, I, uh-huh. I, I tried every trick in the book. Uh-huh. Yeah. How did they work for you? How did those tricks work? It, it finally culminated in me going to AA for the first time in 1992, which was, you know, I graduated law school when I was about 25. So that was, I was 10 years into the career when I first attempted to sober up. So did you go straight into AA or or did you go through a treatment program or what were the circumstances that got you to AA in the first place? I went straight to AA. I've I've never been to a treatment program. Hmm. Okay. And it was on the heels of I I got arrested for DWI. I always bragged I was never convicted of DWI, (laughs) but I, I was pulled over and taken to jail for it three times. I just always got out of it because I was a lawyer. And back then, you know, you could get out of it if you were a lawyer. Uh, oh, but it was on the heels of that that I went into AA. And uh, I, I did the 90 and 90 days, that first stint in AA. And miraculously, my desire to stop drinking went away, which huh. was an absolute miracle considering that I had been drinking every day for you know the past 10 or 15 years. Hmm. So when you first went in for that first 90 days, how much desperation was there going on in your life at that point? Or was it, I think I ought to stop versus I bet I got to stop. What, what, where were you on that, on that scale? I had not yet been given the gift of desperation. In retrospect, looking back on why I failed that first go around, it was because, uh, I mean, I, I went in to satisfy my wife at the time uh-huh. and my parents, not me. I had no desperation. I hadn't really suffered any real consequences in my life. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's funny. I worked it pretty hard that first year mm-hmm. and stayed sober, but I tried to do it without God. That was my my big failure. I was either so mad at God or I didn't believe he existed. It was one of the two things that I, uh-huh. I, I vacillated back and forth between those two emotions because of all the medical stuff that had happened to me as a kid, I thought either there is no God or if there is a God, I want I don't want to have anything to do with him because of yeah. what all he let happen to me when I was a kid. Sure. And so when I did AA, I went through the steps and everything. But I mean, every time God got mentioned in the steps, I just kind of uh, avoided it. And as you know, God shows up a lot in the steps. And so yeah, he does. Yeah. While I tried to do the steps, I, I never found a God of my understanding the first go around. Huh. Were you working with a sponsor at the time? I met this guy in AA and he uh, I, I liked him. I kind of liked what he what he had to say at meetings and stuff. And he said, uh, he said, look, I'll be your sponsor, but I'm never going to call you. You know, you got to call me. And I went, hey, Perfect arrangement. <laughs> and so I had a quote unquote sponsor, but I just never called him. So you could truthfully say you had a sponsor, but it wasn't a sponsor in the form of somebody who was going to help you work the steps and get through your uh, difficulties with identifying with a higher power, I guess, huh? Correct. Wow. Yes. That must have been tough. So how long did you stay sober that first time in 92? I, you made the 90 and 90. How much further did you go at that point? You know, I got my first year chip. I was still going to a bunch of meetings. Uh-huh. I say I was going to a bunch of meetings. You know, I and I was, but I, you know, I would typically show up a couple of minutes late, and I would mm-hmm. typically leave a couple of minutes early because I was so busy and all that. So yeah, I never made real friends in AA that go around. But I stayed sober the whole first year. I stayed sober. A, a lot of the second year, the ego started coming back and I, you know, I started going, you know, I got this. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so I quit going to many meetings and it slowly but surely got down to I quit going to any meetings and you know, then the wheels fell off. But a, a real pivotal moment for me in my recovery, I had set a goal for myself when I was a lawyer that I wanted to win a multi-million dollar case before the age of 40. Hmm. And so I and another friend of mine, we had a big case and we, we tried a 
jury trial up in Dallas for a month. And I was sober during this time. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I always had what I now call this God-shaped hole in my soul. Mm-hmm. At the time, I thought if I achieved my goal of, of getting a multimillion-dollar verdict, that I will have arrived, I will feel good about myself, and that mm-hmm. will all go away. Mm-hmm. And we ended up winning a judgment in excess of five million bucks, and we all we went out to celebrate that night. And um. I did not drink that night, but I, hmm. I never felt so bad in my life because I didn't feel anything. I, I thought that was going to be the thing that filled that hole up. Yeah. And I, I just felt nothing. I, it, it was wow. the worst. I craved alcohol more that night than I ever have craved it before or since. I did wow. not drink, but the wheels started coming off fairly shortly thereafter because yeah. I realized I had to do something that filled that hole. Yeah, that's got to be an incredibly lonely feeling. It was a really lonely feeling. Huh. So you had achieved what you set out to achieve, and it was like a hollow victory, I guess, huh? Completely hollow. So when was that? Uh, you, you were still sober. You were going on two years at that point? You know, the math fuzzies for me because I ended up not drinking for another couple of years after that, but I huh. slowly... I started smoking pot again, and I would occasionally take a pain pill and all of that. Right, so right. I was still not drinking, but I obviously wasn't sober. Mm-hmm. But the wheels didn't come off until a couple of years after that. Because it was definitely of... before my 40th birthday that I won this thing. And, and I sobered up my 40th year in, in July. Wow. I turned 40 in May, and I sobered up this go-around on July 1st of 1997. Wow. So that five-year period in between, you have this victory, this hollow victory, albeit, and then you stayed dry but started using other things, marijuana. And when did the lever trip for the alcohol at that point then? And and what did that look like? The further way I, I got from AA, I started having an affair on my wife, uh-huh. and you know, I found in AA there's so many guys that, you know, the whole sex thing, you know, that's as good of a pain reliever as as alcohol is. I mean, yeah. especially when you feel less than and apart from, you know, there's nothing like a, a woman giving you some attention to make that all go away. You know, I, I cheated on my wife. Mm-hmm. And... Shortly thereafter, I took my first drink, and God, mm-hmm. I can remember it like it was five years ago. I ordered a double Chevis and water, and I drank it, and literally the second the first drink went down, I went, oh, shit. And I, I didn't realize up to that point how important not drinking had been for me. Even though you were just dry. Exactly, yes. And almost instantly at the same time, I went, well, screw it, and and. Yeah, I started back up with the vengeance with the drinking. And uh, Mm -hmm. I got to the point where I was really, really close to getting divorced. Uh, And and, Mm. at this point, we've skipped over this. This is my second wife at this point. I I got divorced from the the first wife before my first sobering up. So this is my second wife who had been through all of this with me and I did that to her and you know it got to the point where I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror and I just got that gift of desperation you know I I left my family and at that point I had two kids two young kids Mm -hmm. and I left them and my wife on Thanksgiving of Mm -hmm. 1996 I guess it was Mm -hmm. and temporarily moved in with this woman I barely knew. And uh, sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I I had two epiphanies. You know, I said to myself in my mind, I I said, you know, you've literally tried everything but God to quit drinking and and you've utterly Hmm. failed at it all. And very quickly thereafter said, well, I'm not willing to do that. But mm, then I mm-hmm. had a real epiphany. It was getting real close to Christmas, and, and the woman I was with said, hey, what do you want to do for Christmas? We could go to my family's house. And I'm. it was almost like God talked to me in my head and, and, <laughs> and said, you can either go to these people's house that you barely know, or you can go back home to your wife and kids. And the next day I did the latter. I went back home to my wife and oh, kids. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I'd like to say I stayed sober at that point. That was 
early December. Uh-huh. I bumped and skidded to a halt, and then I finally came back in July 1st of 1997, and had been here ever since. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. So that time right before Christmas of 96, you had your moment of clarity. Absolutely. Did you continue on with the affairs after you went back? No. Okay, so that stopped as well. Was your first marriage, was alcohol a big part of what went wrong in that marriage, or was were there other issues? There were other issues. It certainly it certainly played a part. She had been my high school sweetheart, and you know the relationship mm. had actually run its course, really, before we actually got married. But, I mean, we had been together all through college and law school and you know marriage seemed like the obvious conclusion to that and i mean because we divorced Uh like a year and a half after we got married so don't get me wrong absolutely alcohol contributed to it Uh uh-huh did she try and get you to stop drinking well it was funny she smoked pot a bunch she didn't drink much so i mean we were getting two different buzzes at the same time and that didn't always work out well. Uh-huh. So you were married a year and a half, but you guys had actually known each other for quite a bit longer than that. How long before you met your second wife after that divorce? I met her at my first job. She was my boss's, who I was telling you about earlier, legal assistant. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So relatively short rebound there, huh? Yes. Yes. Wow. Wow. For how long did your family, meaning your second wife and your kids, have to see you drunk or engaging in whatever behavior you were doing at the time? When I finally sobered up, my daughter was nine and my son was six. Uh-huh. And, and I've, I've talked to both of them a lot about it. My son doesn't remember me being drunk. Uh, my daughter my daughter does. At what point did you first tell them about your alcoholism and your participation in AA? I told them pretty early on. I mean, they, they knew... When I yeah. came back and I went to AA, I mean, I think I told them immediately. Yeah, because AA absolutely hmm. saved hmm. my marriage and, and saved everything for me. How did you feel when you went back to AA? Did you feel like you had finally just been beaten? Uh, was there any any sense of disappointment or whatever else that you had to go back to AA, that you couldn't do it on your own? Or, or were you ready and willing at that point? I, I was ready. I, I, I was absolutely desperate. I had given up every set of morals I ever tried to live by. I, uh-huh. I, I was in absolute desperation. I luckily wow. found Dan D., who we all know and love, as my sponsor. And, yeah. and Dan and AA literally saved my life and my marriage. I mean, at that point, I was willing to do anything he told me to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've known Dan for well over 30 years, and he's uh, he's an amazing man and has done an extraordinary job with the men that he's sponsored, and you being one of them, I think it's it's incredible. So you had a sponsor who finally put you to work, and did he work with you on the spiritual aspect of the program? Big time, yes. Yeah. It was funny. He One of the things he did in retrospect was genius was, you know, I tried to, Say, hey, well, look, I've already worked the steps. Let's just stay. And he goes, no, 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 no. We're going to start from step one, and we're going to work one step every two months. Initially, Hmm. that really bothered me because I wanted to blow through it and be able to tell my wife, see, you know, I've done it and all of that. But it was Uh really genius on his part because by the time we got to step nine, I had been sober for 18 months, and when I went to make, amends to my wife for all I had done to her. 
she knew I was mm-hmm. serious at that point. I mean, I had been going every day to yeah. AA and I'd been working the steps and mm-hmm. we had been going to counseling. And, and so she knew it was serious. And, and I really think had we blown through the steps like I wanted to when I first hooked up with Dan, I don't think my marriage would have survived that. I really don't. Yeah, it sounds like it was on really thin ice about the time that you made it back, huh? It was on very thin ice. And for those Mm. out there who are listening to this story who might be going through being estranged from their wife or husband, depending on sex, obviously, uh, I I have a great story. It was probably my seventh or eighth year Mm -hmm. after sobering up this go round, and, you know, Thanksgiving rolled around. Mm -hmm. And and as you can imagine, I mean, Thanksgiving for several years was not a real happy time because it brought back the memories of me leaving. But in my seventh or eighth year of sobriety, my wife said to me on Thanksgiving, you know, I'm glad all of this happened because you wouldn't be the man you are now if it had not happened. And so it it took a while, but because of AA, there was complete healing for us in every, everything I had done. So it was, you know, I tear up every time I talk, start talking about that. In working the steps, Charlie, were there any particular steps that were harder for you than others? Yeah, I guess it was the the biggies. Four and five were hard for me. Yeah. In what way? You know, just when I first did my Uh fourth step, I I did it. I typed it all up on a computer, you know, and I I had nice little subsections (laughs) and all that. And so I give it to Dan and Dan goes, well, that's great, but I want you to handwrite it out. And it really pissed me off at the time because I was really proud of my little formatting and everything. But I, I ended up handwriting mm-hmm. it out. And because I had put it on computer before, you know, the handwriting, I did it all at the same time. And it, it was pretty dang long. And it was just looking back at everything that I had done that was always based on my self-centeredness, just every decision I had made in life up to that point was completely self-centered in mm-hmm. nature. As the years yeah. progressed, yeah. I cared less and less about who I hurt as I sought the, those self-interests. And and so putting that down on paper, uh-huh. first of all, and then sharing that with a man was really hard. <laughs> Yeah, I found the fourth step was really hard, too, because doing the fourth step, I knew because I read ahead that I would have to do a fifth step. I did the same thing as you. (laughs) Right. And so that really, at least in my first fourth step, it really inhibited me, even to the extent that I didn't do my fifth step with my sponsor of three months at that time, because I had already been sober for a little over a year. I ended up doing it with my therapist because I figured this guy's already got uh, kind of an inside look at my you know, at my inside so that I could do it a little bit more comfortably with with him. But I even held back from him, a guy who I was telling everything else to. I still held back on that fourth step. And it wasn't until one or two fourth steps later that I finally got to the point that if I don't tell the whole story, I may go back and drink. Did did you find that to be the kind of the case, too? Well, yeah, I'm glad to hear you're a multi step person because Dan and I, since I first sobered up, we redo the steps about every five years. And uh, for example, the, the first go around, we, we got to the fear category and I, with a completely right. straight face, because I absolutely believe this, said, I don't really fear anything. And as the years have progressed, uh-huh. I mean, Dan and I now have done four or five different going all the way through the steps, you know, fear just permeates everything about my life, whether it is fear of what you're going to think of me or fear of failure or fear of events unknown in the future. Uh Just fear is just all over me. But the first go around, I couldn't see it. And so I hear all these people in AA who say, you know, I've, I've only done the steps once and and I work 10, 11, and 12 to deal with whatever comes up in the present and future, that may work for them, but it doesn't work for me. I mean, I've got to keep doing it because every time I we've done another all the way through the steps, you know, more layers of the onion come off it, and I get to see more of what's yeah. motivated all that behavior in the past. Yeah. And the good thing about doing it with the same guy every time, and I've done that with my sponsor now of 32 years, is that I think in the subsequent fourth steps I've done, I've had a tendency to rehash fourth step items that were on previous fourth steps. And the good thing about doing it with somebody who you've done it with before is they can remind you, you know, you dealt with this once. What was there about the way we handled this last time that makes you feel like you have to do it this time? And quite frankly, Charlie, there were times that the only 
reason I put those things down was I figured I needed some more stuff to put down. And so I kind of looked back and said, well, you know, maybe this and that. And he would remind me, he said, well, you already covered that. Was your part any different the second time you wrote this down than it was the first? And, you know, true to form, it wasn't. So I had to get straight with that. But yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that too, because every now and then you hear about somebody who's gotten it all on the first pass. And it's really easy to feel like even with years and years of sobriety, you go, man, what's that guy got that I don't got? Yeah, no, I, my experience has been exactly what yours is. So I'm assuming that if you're doing this every five years, that you did your eighth and ninth step, what was that like the first time you had to do it? Yeah, the ones I thought would be hard were easy, and the ones I thought were going to be easy were kind of hard. I uh, In what way? Well, when I did, I, I really dreaded doing my wife, obviously, because, you know, of the extent of harm I had done to her, and she was very, very sweet, accommodating, receptive, forgiving. It, it was it was just, I sweated that one out and it was a, just a really great experience for our relationship. What were your expectations? I didn't know. I mean, I thought, you know, she was going to come out with some resentments that were still lingering, which God knows she deserved to have them uh, at the point, but it, that just didn't happen. That was a real wow. turning point for us. But I, I thought my dad would be easy because my dad was always my biggest cheerleader and all of that. And, and so I, I went and mm -hmm. did it with him. And I was I was expecting him to say something like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we're all good. And, and he, he goes, at least you're not that person anymore. Was, wow. OK. Huh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and my mom had passed away. She was alive when I sobered up the first go around, but she passed away when I was in my marijuana and pill maintenance program between the two sober, uh -huh. sobering up. So I ended up having to just write her a letter and, and uh, try to make an amends to the, I thought to myself, well, I'm just going to make a living amends to her that I'm not going to be that guy anymore. And I've tried my mm -hmm. best to live up mm -hmm. to that. One. If you were to grade yourself, what would you give? What grade would you give yourself? I give myself a good B plus. I mean, I I, I am not the guy cool. that came into AA on July first of nineteen ninety seven. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am not that guy yeah. anymore. The deal yeah, is, though, I, I can get become that. that guy, and I have no doubt about that. If if I quit going to AA, yeah. if I quit talking to my sponsor, if I quit praying to God every day. That guy's still in me, but mm -hmm. I'm getting the daily reprieve because I have made it my life's mission to keep AA number one in my life because everything good in my life flows from me being in the center of the herd with AA. Yeah, well, I find that is the same for me, that my disease is one that wants me to forget the good things and start dwelling on some of the bad things. Remembrance of the bad things has never done very much to keep me sober. It's all the good things that are out there that I'm missing that I need to be focused on. Like you, I made my amends when I made them. Uh, my sponsor told me to keep my ex expectations as low as possible because there was a chance that people who I did amends with would not offer me forgiveness. In fact, it might provoke additional resentments on their part. That didn't happen for me, fortunately, but I was I was pretty amazed when I was done that I didn't have more emotional outbursts from the people I was doing it with. But, you know, I mean, I just think it's natural when you go to somebody and you admit that you were wrong for people to want to let you off the hook. That in and of itself, that discussion is a really uncomfortable discussion for people to listen to. You know, for me to say, Charlie, I was wrong about this and that and this and that and this and that. And, you know, you want to keep the person from beating themselves up. So they said, eh, don't worry about it. It wasn't that bad when it really was. Right. Right. I take it from your experience with Dan that you learned a great deal about how to sponsor other men along the way. I did. He was a perfect example for me. And so I, I modeled much of the way I sponsor men on the way he sponsored me. Uh-huh. What was your experience with your first sponsee like? How long was it before you hooked up with somebody to sponsor? You know, I started sponsoring... Pretty early on, probably uh, second or third year, I guess, because I, I again saw and, and listened to guys like you in the program that I admired talking about how important working with others was. So I, you know, I figured once mm -hmm. I had finished going through the 12 steps, I was told by Dan, you know, you've done the 12 steps now, you need to start working with other people. How did you find them or did they find you? 
they mostly found me. Uh, I mean, by and large, it was people seeking me out. Mm-hmm. I say that my most recent sponsor, yeah. we were on a Zoom Thursday meeting and mm-hmm. Scott mm-hmm. B messages me on Zoom and says, I've got a guy I want you to sponsor. And, and <laughs> my deal always was when the hand of AA reaches out, I never say no. So I said, send him to me. So <laughs> so you've been sponsoring him since that point? I have. He sobered up during Zoom. He, he had never been to a live meeting for, you know, and he was, he's now, he's almost, uh, Almost 18 months now. That's but, uh, amazing. Have you met him in person or has it been all Zoom? Yeah, we, we're, we're both vaccinated now. So we, uh, yeah, we've been getting together. Wow. Do you find you're approached by people who are a lot like you? Well, it's funny you ask that. Uh, five years or so ago, I guess, this guy came to me and asked me to sponsor him. And his, his story was almost uh-huh. identical to mine. I mean, you know, he was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. He had cheated on his wife. And, uh-huh. and you know, God really uh-huh. has a sense of humor putting the two of us together because mm-hmm. it was so raw for me. I mean, I, I was it made me relook at who I was 24 years ago in this man. And every time wow. he talked about rationalizing his behavior and all, I, it was just, I mean, it was literally painful for me to meet with him a lot of times because of could see myself in almost every word coming out of his mouth. Wow. I, I think I learned way more out of that sponsorship than he did. He, he went back out again, but boy, did it help me. When he went back out, did he contact you or, or do you found out anything about him? I kind of adopted Dan's rule. You know, if I'm your sponsor and you go back out, I'm not going to sponsor you again. I'll be your friend, but I'm not going to sponsor you again. So this guy went yeah, out. I get that. He then called me back up and I violated mm-hmm that rule and, and he talked me into sponsoring him again and then he went out again so uh it's a pretty good rule i think yeah well i think it's a good rule and i'm kind of the same way it depends on the circumstances under which somebody goes out i've had that experience before and you know my question always is what of the things that we talked about that were true for you the first time you were sober turned out not to be true to the extent that you had to go back out and drink over it Usually they don't have a good answer for that. So it, it's always it's always a sign that perhaps they need to be working with someone else. And I've had guys who I haven't been able to reach who others have. And God bless them. Absolutely. Yeah. So as you're looking at your sobriety over the past 24 years, Charlie, are there any things that stick out in your mind that were particularly challenging times that you might have questioned whether or not you'd be able to stay sober through them or or took you right up to the edge? The answer is no. I've never seriously considered taking a drink in that entire 24 years. I, again, credit that to staying in the middle of the herd and making AA my number one priority. Mm -hmm. I have had, well, I've had many painful life experiences during those 24 years. And one of the most painful Mm -hmm. for me, and, and it's a telling AA story, is that probably two months into my sobriety this go around, Dan D, we went to a Saturday morning meeting and he asked me to go to breakfast afterwards with him and a group of AA dudes. And so I did, even though I didn't really want to. And at that meeting, he introduced me to Bob B. And Bob B and I had an instant connection. I mean, we sat there and talked for probably two and a half hours that morning. And I, I told him things that I had never told anybody in my life. And I had just met him that morning. And he and I became fast friends. And (laughs) for everybody who knew Bob B. During his prime in AA, if somebody had asked me, you know, name the top three guys that are never going to go back out, Bob B. would have been at the top of my list. And as you know, Bob got away from the herd and Uh he's no longer with us anymore. And uh, when all that was going down, I I came to so many Thursday meetings that I'd text him and go, Bob, you know, your office is really close. Come on over. And he never would. And I just, you know, we could all kind of see the writing on the wall and there was nothing we could do about it. And uh, yeah, yeah, that whole episode was really, really painful for me. But I mean, it it gave me a very important AA life lesson, which is 
that could easily be me if I don't stay close to you guys. Well, I, I remember that. And, and I know we all reached out. And the Bob B we're talking about, of course, is Swamp Bob. And uh, his story of what it was like before he got to AA was always the most engaging part of what any share that he made. And he he definitely was one of those guys that you would look at and say, man, after what he went through to get sober, that guy's never going to go back out. But there were those of us, you and, and you and I and Dan and some others, because I remember the, some of the phone calls we were having during the time that we were all trying to reach him, that it, it's like he was he was slipping away and we kept reaching out and reaching out. And he met a tragic end that, you know, none of us expected. I don't know that it was a wake-up call for many people, but at least for me, it was one of those things that made me realize that if I get away, that could be me, too. Right. It's like what you just said. I remember calling him a number of times, and I don't know if he ever did this with you, but I would call, we'd talk about it. I'd say, well, I'm going to be over at the Thursday meeting tomorrow or a couple of days. Oh, can I meet you there? Yeah, yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there. And he, and he never showed. And, you know, I, th I know that there are some people around AA who feel like if their intention is right... They get enough satisfaction from the response to their intention that they never have to actually follow through with it. Right. And he always seemed to be one of those guys who were saying, I'll be there, I'll be there, don't worry about it, I'm doing fine, I'm working on this, I'm working on that. And you know that they're slipping, but there's not much that you can do about it, is there? No, there, there wasn't. It. It, was, it was so frustrating and aggravating and hurtful. And God, I miss that guy, though. Yeah, I do too. He was a really, he was a really, he was a beautiful man, a beautiful soul. You know, at least at his memorial service, men were getting up and talking about Bob, the sober man in AA until his untimely demise. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've had some things that AA has helped you get through uh, by staying in the middle. You you never you were never too far off towards the edge. That's that's kind of my my story as well. Particular gifts that you can think of over the last twenty four years that have made a big difference in your life. My marriage. I mean, I'm married to the love of my life, to my best friend, absolutely mm. beautiful woman who I just adore. That is absolutely a gift of AA. I, I am 100% positive I would not be married to her right now if it, but for AA. So th that, I have my kids' respect. They look up to me. They admire mm -hmm. me. I would not have had that. I know that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just so many blessings. I, I have a wonderful partners at, at my law firm. My firm's very successful, and I, I would not have had just mm -hmm. every every gift in my life I have. I have a wonderful life right now, and it, it would have been gone without mm -hmm. AA. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how it is for me too. And I try and stay as engaged in AA as I possibly can. Zoom has actually made it a lot easier over the last eighteen months to to engage to a much higher degree than I did before. I mean, going to as many as five or six more meetings a week than I was going to previously. But now I find as those meetings are starting to meet back in person, I'm running out of time to be able to go to live meetings. So uh, I've I've had a kind of select those that I'm willing to drive to and spend the time and getting to and participating in and those which I have to just say I'll I'll get to them when I can and then others that are just conveniently via Zoom which which has made a big difference for me. It sounds like you've been a big participant in Zoom as well. Yeah, I love the Zoom. Although I've got to say when I first went back to my first live meeting after COVID when we said the serenity prayer and it all happened in unison, it, it, I actually got chills up my back because, as you know, we're, we're either saying the serenity prayer or the Lord's prayer on Zoom. If everybody's speaking at once, it, it just sounds like everybody's speaking in tongues because Zoom doesn't sync up. It's a cacophony. Yeah. <laughs> it was really cool to hear it in unison finally again after a year. But yeah, I love the Zoom meetings. I, I went to a bunch of Zoom meetings really cool ones from out of state that I would have never been able to participate in. But buddies of mine who live elsewhere go, hey, we got this Zoom meeting. It's really cool. So I, I took advantage of it. Yeah. You know, I'm actually a greeter in a meeting in London, <laughs> of all things. You know, that it's only because I showed up and I started saying hi to everybody. And, you know, to me, it's not a big deal to say hi and meet people and get there a little early and, and get to know some people. And they said, why don't you be the greeter? I said, sure, I'll do it. And and I do it every I do it every week. And when I'm not there, people send me text messages saying, where are you? And that's kind of neat. But 
Uh, I, I enjoyed the Zoom as well. It's allowed me to re-engage in a way that, that is really special and, and important in my life. You know, Howard, you don't know how important your greeting and your hugs are to so many men at the Thursday meeting. I mean, I remember when I first yeah. came there, God, it had to be 15 years ago now or something. But whenever it was, at you least. greeted me. Uh, you shook my hand at the time. But the second go around, you, you remembered my name. And we started giving each other hugs. And you're you're one of the best huggers. Yeah. And I, I love your hugs. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate it. I love yours, too. And you're you're one of the most approachable people. That's one of the things I'll say about you is you are highly approachable. There are some men who just by their demeanor kind of say, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit rough. But you, your demeanor in a meeting before and after is I'm there for you, just you collectively. And I think that that's a real that's a real gift to be able to project that kind of availability to men and your ability to be able to let them know that you care. And the fact that you're such a terrific friend to a lot of guys and especially to your sponsor and the fact that, that you and he are so close. Uh, I, I just love Dan. And of course, I love you. But it's it's amazing to uh see you guys in the same meetings whenever whenever you're there at the same time. I know you come up and you go to lunch. Now, he and I co-sponsor each other now, which is kind of unusual and, and wouldn't work for everybody, but it works great for me and him. What does co-sponsorship look like for you? Whenever we get together, he'll, we'll start off with me one week and go, okay, tell me what your week's been like and any ups and downs or hurts or whatever, and I'll talk for 15 minutes or so, and then we'll switch over to him and and, you know, it ebbs and flows. Mm -hmm. He, As you know, Dan has MS, and, and physical challenges of that have been really heavy for him lately. So I've been taking more of the weight yeah. of, of the relationship. But that, that always ebbs and flows. I mean, I'm happy to take it because, yeah. I mean, my God, that man's done everything for me. And we just, it's a beautiful symbiotic relationship we've got co-sponsoring each other. And, uh, I mean, we literally know everything about er anything in each other's lives. And I've got the same kind of relationship that you have with Dan, with my sponsor, that, you know, we're more than just sponsor, sponsee. We do, I guess you could say co-sponsor, but it's it's just... It's like a best friendship, and there's one person in the world outside of maybe my spouse that knows more about me than anybody else, and that's important. That's absolutely Dan for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the last thing I want to ask you is, if you could go back in time, knowing what you know now, and go back and meet the Charlie of the years that you were at the height of your addiction, what would you say to them, or what, what would you find yourself saying to them about what to expect in the future? You know, the, the biggest advice I would have for him was be open to the concept of God, uh, that you can't do this thing on your own, mm, mm -hmm. but you can with God's help. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think I would I would probably say something similar to the Howard of that period in my life as well, because I believed in God. I just didn't believe that he could do anything for me and that I couldn't do anything for him. And the great thing about AA is it allows us to connect with God on a giving and receiving basis. It's not just about, you know, God, grant me this, grant me that, grant me the other. But God, let me be of maximum service to my fellows uh, the whole uh, the whole third step prayer, let's say. Absolutely, which I say on my knees every morning. Yeah, I do too. I do too. It's one of my favorites, and it's one of those that makes a that makes a huge difference in the way that my day goes. And I have to do it on my knees because my mind is such that at least if I'm on my knees, I can remind myself that I'm praying. Whereas if I'm laying on my back, it may just be me thinking about it. And as all those other thoughts intrude, it kind of dilutes the power of that prayer at that particular time for me. Do you ever find that? Oh, absolutely. And, it, and it's funny, very early on in my sobriety, I was at a Alder Street meeting with Dan mm -hmm. and some guy started talking about getting down on his knees and praying. And I leaned over to Dan and goes, and I said, why does that matter? And he goes, well, you know, before you condemn it, I want you to do it for the next two weeks. And so at that point, mm -hmm. again, I was desperate enough to do whatever he told me to do. So for the next two weeks, I got down on my knees every morning and, and, prayed. And that was the big turnaround for me on finding a God of my understanding that I could trust in. 
Yeah, that's important. We'll talk about the gift of desperation. I mean, it seems it, it hardly seems reasonable that desperation would be a gift, but what it prompted you to do is the real gift in that in that situation, isn't it? It was an abs- absolutely a gift for me. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Well, Charlie, this has been amazing and very inspiring for me to be able to sit down with you today. I as you and I have known each other over the years, I Certain things that you've told me today kind of complete the story. I know it's not the end of the story, but it completes the story of Charlie D for me. And it's allowed me to become a lot more grateful that I know you and that you're in my life. Because when you're not at a meeting, I notice that you're not there. Like when you're not there on Thursdays, I know that you're not there. When you're there, the meeting just feels more complete. So I, I just want you to know that and that uh, and that I love you and I respect the program that you work and you're you're an amazing individual, brother. And um, I'm so glad to have you in my life. That's so sweet of you to say, Howard, and I feel exactly the same way. I mean, you are the, one of the guys that I respect so much and love in the program. And, and you're such a big part of my life. Thanks, Charlie, for doing this today, brother. My pleasure. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. If you've enjoyed the interviews in this podcast series, please share it with others. This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. If you want to contact me directly with any comments, questions, or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. Please also take a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. AA recovery interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA recovery interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.